What if all you needed to get better in every way was available at the touch of a hand or the sound of a voice or even a vibration? Let's talk about how that happens, who can do it, and where to find them. I'm John Webster, and this is The Hesitant Healer. Greetings and welcome to The Hesitant Healer. I'm here on today's podcast with my trusty sidekick, Lisa Kay. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I didn't say hi again. Okay. <laughs> so Lisa Kay's here too. Hey, uh, we're not going to dawdle today because we got somebody like super duper superstar special. Exactly. And we're just going to go ahead and introduce her and then we'll mm -hmm. let her talk about herself a little bit. Uh -huh. uh, today we are here with a fellow Solmonot. Mm -hmm. And she also has a, a big deal company called The Melt, Melt Method. Method. Is that right? And uh, she is the owner and creator of The Melt Method. And her name is Sue Hitzman. And if I'm not wrong, you're in New York, right? Actually, I, I moved down to Florida. Oh. oh. Even better. Because New York can be depressive. All right. <laughs> here's, here's Sue Hitzman. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. So nice. We have, uh, we kind of bump around in the same circles, but we've never met in person. This is the first time we've actually seen each other face to face. We've talked on uh, Facebook a little bit. We're both uh, body people. We both love the human form and the things that it can do. And uh, you got into this in, uh, in a way to heal yourself, right? And uh, that's how you started uh, your line of work. And we can talk a little bit about that, but you have a, a whole nother story that was out there, and this involves uh, your husband who passed away. It's been four years? Four years, actually. Yeah, just four years this past week. Oh. And that was, um, it was an addiction issue? It was an addiction, yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go back a little bit first and tell me a little bit about the melt method and how you got there, though. Well, I mean, like you said, I um, I mean, I actually I think the whole thing originates from my childhood of watching a great grandmother who was super spry in one instance. And then the next year we came back and she was in an old folks home and I had never seen in, you know, so many old people. I guess I, I didn't even see her as old. Right. You know, but when you suddenly are 11 years old and you walk into a sea of, you know, people with the smell of the space and everything. And it was such a I think I got post-traumatic stress disorder from it, watching these old people reach out to my to my um, cousin, like wanting to touch her. And I was like, don't touch like what what's wrong with right. all these people? Right. You know, and uh, it's almost we, like a horror movie, isn't it? Like it was, you know, and my my great grandmother, she was just so loving of me. I just remember her putting her hands on my cheeks there and whispering in my ear, never get old. Oh. And, and so when I went into uh, the car with my aunt, I said, what happened to great grandma? And she said, she just got old. And I said, are you going to get old? And she said, yeah. And I was like, am I going to get old? She said, yeah. I go, well, how do you stop this from happening? Right. And I think that that was really the introduction where when I was a kid would epitomize health and wellness for people like Jack LaLanne and Jane Fonda. So I really bit into this idea that if you ate right and you exercise, you lead an active, healthy life, jump ahead. I'm now, you know, in a degree for exercise science and a master's program. And I get introduced to Leon Chaitow and Judy Delaney's work of neuromuscular therapy. And it kind of sent me into a bit of a disarray because it, 
what I was learning in school was like there was some sort of a dis disjointness to it. And it got me into understanding how the nervous system really operates well outside of just like, you know, doing a bicep curl or doing a tricep extension, right? That there was more to sensory motor control and well-being that I hadn't really been introduced to. And so at the point where I thought I knew everything, as all 20, mid 20 year olds do. <laughs> yes, we did. I was about 28 years old. And one day I woke up and the bottom of my foot hurt me. And I thought I stepped on a piece of glass. And so I ignored it. And then, and then the pain got worse. And then it was like, God, what did I do to my foot? Right. And uh, I did everything. I iced it. I stretched it. I rested. And what started out as this foot pain turned into this body-wide fatigue and ache that I just could not shake. My, I, I, uh, my, it affected my mood. It affected my sleep. It affected my belief that it was ever going to go away. And so when I finally got to the point where I started reaching out to um, doctors, all the doctors would prescribe were medication or anti-inflammatories or even antidepressants. I even had one doctor say, we need to do some more exploratory tests because we think you might have lupus. And I was like, lupus wow. you know what i mean so but so it was like the doctors were they're treating me like i had an acute trauma or or i or i had a chronic disease and i was like they're missing something and what got me into the whole fascial community was i was just sitting there one day and i just thought to myself plantar fasciitis i remember one of the doctors saying it's plantar fasciitis i thought inflamed fascia can inflamed fascia cause all this pain and if that's the case there's no exercise for that what exactly is that and I uh, luckily the internet became a thing. I typed in the word fascia in the internet, and I and I came up to about 150 sites that were discussing fascia. Most of them were actually about fascias, like airplane propellers um, or or sticks wrapped in twine. But the ones that were about the human body, I just started going down the rabbit hole to read research papers, and I found Thomas Findlay, uh, and then a friend of mine where I was talking about you know, I felt like I had like a run in a stocking somewhere deep inside of my body. And my friend, Alec Hellner, who's a body worker, said, said, um, you know, why don't you uh, look at Gil Headley's layer by layer dissection? And I remember saying layer by layer what? (laughs) The fascial tissue. And I was like, there's somebody that's dissecting fascia. And he's like, yeah. And I thought, the hell is going on that I've never heard about any of this, right? So I met Gil and Tom Findlay, and I went down this rabbit hole in the early 2000s, and I've just never looked back. And um, I I went from treating high-performance athletes who had gotten injured on the field, and in 2001, when 9-11 happened, all of a sudden, I was getting people who had... Um, emotional trauma from losing people and a lot of people with lung issues from breathing in all of the you know contaminants from um ground zero and that was a huge turning point all of these things culminating at the same time for me where what i started to uncover was this idea that emotional trauma can cause as much physical pain as getting into a car accident and it can last right. a lot longer and it and it's somewhere in the body that i hadn't really considered like is there some other place besides the mind and is my mind really here or 
is there some connection? And what we know of fascia is, you know, we call it a connective tissue because it's a connective tissue, but it's also a sensory organ where all of our sensory nerves live. And it's also a system that stabilizes us. So as I started to uncover all of this understanding, I went down the rabbit hole of doing cranial sacral therapy, visceral manipulation, light touch therapeutic interventions, and all of them, the common thread was fascia. And a client of mine who had chronic TMJ said to me one day after, you know, her jaw and her headaches and migraines were, were dissipating for days on end after she saw me, she said, you know, if you could just invent a way for me to do to myself what you do with your magic hands, I'd stay out of your office. And I thought I'd be unemployed if you could do that. <laughs> but wait, it's kind of an interesting idea. And so I just started playing around with balls and rocks and rollers. And I came up with this idea of taking PVC piping. I wrapped it in bubble wrap. I wrapped it in a yoga blanket and then a yoga mat and I duct taped the thing together and I started to apply the same kind of gentle dragging kind of techniques that I would do with my hands on a client. And one day I decompressed my own neck. I knew I did it. And so I shared it with this gal, Donna, and she went from being able to go about five to seven days without seeing me without a migraine to 15 days to 20 days to 30 days. And so I was like, oh my God, it worked, right? And so she said to me, well, could you invent a way for my husband to stop complaining about his low back pain? And I was like, let me see if I could do a low back decompression. And so it was just kind of like an experiment. I, my body was the experimental place and then I would share it with my private clients. And by 2004, my private practice exploded. I had worked on thousands of people at that point. And I just, gosh, I've been in the fitness industry for all this time. I wonder if I could bring a little bit of this into the fitness realm and put this in group environments and maybe I could keep people out of the office. So I coined the term melt. I started teaching it in group environments. And then by 2007, other instructors were like, I want to teach this. So I created a curriculum. I, I started refining the science into simplified language. And then in 2010, I set out to write the, the book in 2013. The Melt Method book came out, it became a New York Times bestseller. I've since written a follow-up called Melt Performance. And today I've got 3,500 instructors in 28 countries teaching the Melt Method. And we've helped hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. And I just feel very privileged that um, I've been able to uphold the science into a very simple method of self-care to get people to take action, to not wait for pain, to let them know that their bodies need their help. Amazing. Amazing. I, I, I love the science part too. That's one of the things that, that clipped me when I went to massage school. It's like, I, I don't just want to do touchy feely stuff. I want to be able to help people, but I want to be able to explain it in a scientific way so that it's understood and accepted across the, the communities as well. How many, how many dissection classes have you been to? <laughs> 50. Wow. And not just with too many, too not many. just with Gil, right? You've been to you've been to multiple. No, I've, I've I've had the honor to do one with Tom Finley. I I have actually done one with Julian and Gil. Um, I, I did them at, at the uh, fascia. We had a fascia kind of community that went out to Germany and did some dissections there. And of course, the beauty of doing dissections with Gil is that he usually has four or five cadavers at the same time in a room. And because we're doing unfixed cadavers, I've done both, both fixed and unfixed. And um, it, you know, Gil's ability to br really bring the understanding that even the form is a model 
Mm. of what is because in a living human body you can't dissect a layer correct it's all connected right correct. but it but but when we take the frequency and the energy out of this system that i call the fascial system which i think is your chi system i think it's the it's the you know collagen and the interstitial fluids act like a neuroelectrochemical superconductor to communicate its communication system and so when you take the frequency out of that now suddenly it's like a selfie right it's just a snapshot of a one moment in time frozen idea of life and you can't really dissect i love that yeah that's exactly right. You get it. You so get it. <laughs> I do. Uh, so now let's go to the other thing. When did you get married? I got married in 2015 to a beautiful actor, Christopher, who was a, um, a regional Broadway actor. Uh, he did a ton of uh, first national tours all around the country and into Europe um just a beautiful bright star with compassion and very loving um but also had a lot of trauma in his life a lot of a lot of history that had been sort of bottled down um so he was a he was really my teacher he was a great teacher for me was that part of the attraction for you I know, I know I've, I've always been attracted to those type of women. And, and so I, I know that there's a thing in there that's like, ooh, that's, that's part of the attraction. You know, I think maybe there is something where I've always, since I've been a kid, I've always been the helper. Um, my mom, even before I was born, had written a letter to my dad about the fact that I was going to be a good little girl and I had magic in me and I was going to change the world. And I remember when she showed that to me and I said, that's a lot of responsibility to put on a baby that wasn't even born. <laughs> but in some ways she was just like, I just knew you were special when you were in me, right? There was just something about the way you moved. It was like you were dancing. You were so excited to get the hell out and get into the world. It was like, you know, sooner I could have gotten out the better. Um, and so I always, my, I, I grew up with a mom who has bipolar disorder and, uh, and a dad who was very militant. And so I was always the one helping to manage my mother's mess. She's a bit of a hoarder, right? So I was always cleaning. I was always organizing things. Um, I'm a very solution-oriented person. So when somebody tells me a problem, I always stop and ask them questions to see if I can guide them toward an answer. And then sometimes you hear them just continuously talking about the problem. And I'm like, geez, I, I thought that you were looking for a solution. But if you're just <laughs> looking to talk about the problem, maybe you should talk to somebody else because I don't have time just to talk about problems. I want to I don't want problems in my life. I want solutions. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, what was very beautiful, I think, about our relationship is that both of us were travelers, right? He was on tour a lot. I was on a book tour when we first met. So we had a beautiful toured love affair around the country, meeting up in different cities and seeing different cities and having this beautiful romance. And um, I think the biggest thing for me is that I, while I grew up with kind of a an angry dad and a bit of a, you know, crazy mother. Um, we didn't have addiction or alcoholism or drugs or anything in our house. So I didn't really understand 
um, alcoholism or addiction. And when I met Christopher, he had sort of made the explanation to me that alcoholism and addiction were different things. Nice. And that's actually not true. Is right, what right. I've, it, there's no difference. Uh, and, and I think that while he would say from, from drinking, he didn't drink alcohol, mm -hmm. uh, unless they made a 12 step just for Chris Whalen. Um, <laughs> I, I learned, I learned very quickly that, uh, you know, sobriety means really, uh, doing the 12 step of just staying away from everything. Mm -hmm. But um, that just wasn't what was happening. And I didn't, because he had sort of explained it to me the, the way that I had it, mm -hmm. I just thought, well, he's got a handle on himself. You know, he's an adult, he, he's doing the right thing. And uh, I just didn't see it. And then, you know, when his tour ended and my book tour ended, he then moved in with me um, before we got married and and then suddenly you're you know you sort of see certain things mm -hmm. your behaviors and I'm I try to be very compassionate with any type of behavior you know where you observe a behavior in somebody that you love and you ask about it mm -hmm. and then hopefully you're getting an answer that's honest um, and so I I really felt like everything was okay and then it was after we got married where my observations of interesting behaviors became really noticeable and um it it was really probably one of the harder times of my life because when i feel like i'm a fairly intuitive human being right. And, right um when somebody is gaslighting you and telling you that your beliefs or, or your observations are not true. Right. And that, and that I'm wrong. No, it's you, you know, it's not me. I'm not the one with the problem. It's your brother. It's your friends. It's, it's this, and now it's you. Right. So it became this cascade of, um, kind of like I was being set up for disaster. Um. And, uh, I, I don't know. I think that anybody who struggles with someone who has addiction, it's like, it's, you know, there's no rule book on how you should act. And I think that when when you're scared for your life, which was, I think, at the point where I got where I was just so scared for him, for myself, that it almost came off that I was angry. Mm. Right. And it's just sometimes fear comes out like anger. And what what I what I've learned from all of this and losing him is that the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is fear because when you act in a state of fear, can I say the word fuck on your? Absolutely. Of course. We do all the time. M multiple times. Yeah. 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 You, you, you just fuck shit up. You know, but you, if you act in a state of love, there's opportunities for richness to come. And I think that I was acting in such a state of fear that I just, it was the first time in my life where I couldn't, diffuse him like anytime he would get up into one of these states i could bring him down and everything seemed calm but in this instance it got worse and worse and then he went off to go do a show and we went through a lot of um a lot of uh peculiar conversations and then um uh yeah he died he he died of a substance over uh, uh what do you call that um Overdose? overdose an accidental overdose is what it was, an accidental overdose so 
back to the courting phase when you guys got together was it there the whole time or was it suspended and and as he was falling in love and you were falling in love he was able to hide it better or it, it, it you just didn't notice it because it was new for you yeah i just don't think i understood um because you know he was somebody who was going to aa meetings all the time and he seemed to have a very tight community in his um in that aa community they they were very held together and so i really felt like he was putting in the work he really worked for what he was doing you know whatever the daily struggle was that he had every day he was really doing the work to get himself through that day as a so as a sober man and he had even been a sponsor of multiple people uh he had transformed other people's lives and he was so gifted at that right but i think sometimes the you know what is it even with like massage therapists they're the ones that never get the therapy right and so you know those of us who understand that it's like my myself as a therapist i'm always trying to get acupuncture or body work or I'm, I'm i'm always exploring my own process and so i saw him going to aa as being a piece of that so i just um i just thought that all of it was just his his normalcy and the big kick for us was that the a person that lived downstairs from us was um i think he was a bit of a drug dealer and you know it was like putting a lion in a lion's den right. and i just didn't see it i just i just didn't you know, I, I I think that when you form love and belief for somebody, you just trust them to be doing the right thing for them, for yourself, for the connection. And um, I just think it got away from him. And I think he himself was in denial, which I think is the struggle with addiction is that the addict themselves wants to deny that voice in their head that is literally trying to kill them. Right. Yeah. One of the amazing parts about us is how we can compartmentalize that that bullshit counter for sure and and hide it from others, too. We can literally pretend like it it's not happening and that everything's fine. So were you blindsided by this or you kind of knew? Well, I think that there was a point where I knew. I mean, you know, he was he would out of nowhere, like have a, you know, just stop and then kind of come back to earth and i was like what i thought you know at first i thought he had a neurological disorder like something was happening to his brain yeah because i put my hands on him and i would just say you're on a substance and he would say no i'm not you know mm, and that's I said, the gaslighting part yeah yes yeah, something's wrong here you can't say it and and i feel like i have perhaps a voice in my head of intuition some something when i ask my source to to tell me what's wrong i had my hands on my husband one night in bed and i just asked please tell me what is wrong with my husband so i can help him and the words he's expiring oh. came up to my hands and i remember thinking to myself like milk like what do you mean expiring what does that mean and i think that was it like that was the almost a year to the point when he died i wow. think that he i think he was in it i think i missed it and then he had gone off to do this show because again he was an actor and he went off to do the show and it was i think that what happens when you take drugs the the way that he was doing it whatever the substances was that he was taking it i think it creates emotional shading it literally changes the mind yeah. and that was the hardest thing because 
according to other people, he was perfectly fine. And, you know, he was just as the normal Chris that they knew. And I'm like, well, he was a really phenomenal actor. Right. And he could cover it up. And I think the other thing is people think that it just, you know, an addict wouldn't be able to get up and go to work or perform or, and that is bullshit. That is not true. In fact, I think that when you're a seasoned addict when you have and and I don't want to put a label on him you know when he a person that has addictive tendencies let's say that instead of calling them an addict that they have addictive tendencies that it's hard for them to break it and and because it's so hard to break they just get really good at managing it it's kind of like pain right like pain management I always think to myself I don't want to get I don't want to manage my pain. Right. That sounds like a job. That sounds like right. a lot of work. I, I want to get rid of it so that I can go do the things I want to do. Exactly. And in the instance of addiction, I think that it's the same thing is that it's harder to break it than it is manage it. Right. You know, you, you bring up a real interesting point in, in my practice. I've been doing this. I think this is year 18. I've been doing this with an alcoholic background. So I have, I have a gifted touch like you and I have a really good intuition like you. And there have been three over the last, uh, let's say, 18 years where I'm working on them and my intuition tells me something is seriously wrong. Or, or they come in with a list of things and I go touch them and my hands don't say what they're telling me. And, and all three of them, after two to three treatments, I'm literally waking up at night going, something is wrong. I'm missing something. It just didn't add up. And there's like a buzz in the back of my head. And, and then eventually they go and then it hits me. They were addicted to opiates. There's something about opiates that I can't pick up and, and, and that kind of pain management, but the signaling mechanism that you talk about that they're bringing to you, it it obfuscates the truth. And so we end up gaslighting ourselves, um, through touch. Interestingly enough, even though they're not telling us, we can still feel it, um, and there's a disconnection of what, what that property is. It's, it's super interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a real big aspect of it is, is just the, you know, when, you know, you're saying it is when there's something that is happening in the body that you can't break. And and in the instance of opiates, that was the, that was the sneaky culprit of the whole relationship was that Chris would always get injured in a show. Uh, and, and he would always then have drugs, but then he would say he wasn't taking them. You're like, well, I'll just fulfill this prescription, but I won't take them. Right, right, right. And I was like, well, why even f- why fill the script? Well, just in case I get into pain, right? You know. Mm-hmm. And then I would work on him, and he would feel better. But then I remember him saying, "I'm just going to go take an oxy and take a nap." And I was like, I, "Wait, what? I think that's a bad idea." You know, <laughs> right. What, and the, I think what people don't realize, and that is really the, the tough thing about opiates, is that the, your own opiate receptors, when you start taking an opiate, you turn those down. And after a while, when you try to get off of the opiates, it hurts even right. worse than whatever the, the pain was that you had. And that's why people get addicted to it. The body manufactures the pain. That, that was the, the, in that story I just told, that, that was legit. They really did feel that pain. It really, it really did hurt. But when I touch them, it doesn't send the same signaling ne- mechanism to my hand of somebody who's in pain 
the same way. It's an interesting, interesting beast. Yeah. It's a little more of a flow frequency. It's kind of a more, I, I would just say a flat baseline. Then somebody who has pain, there seems a lot more high frequency tone. I get the same thing, you know, but that, that, that is really the, the tough thing with opiates is that now you're stuck. And then if you can't get the opiates, now you go out on the street and, and then there's fentanyl and then you have a fentanyl overdose. And that's, you know, what happened to Chris. And that's, that's, um, that's the hard thing. And, you know, the shame of that, uh, you know, the whole family went through, but this whole thing about, you know, well, we can't tell people right. about this, you know, right. They, you can't say, it. I'm like, wow, like, you know, because we don't want to ruin the family legacy. And right. I think to myself, the family legacy, you know, I think I would have been an addict too if I had to grow up with a family that talks like you guys are talking. Shame on you right. for being the ignorant um, avoidance family that is is in total denial over what's happening. And the thing is, they they knew what was happening probably more than I did. Right. They but then they know. just didn't say anything. And then when he died and they came in and took all of our assets and swooped everything away. Oh and I think to myself that, you know, that's that is the evil of um, shame is right. that under addiction is this horrible, shameful place that most people who turn to some sort of pain reliever of whatever you want to call it, some drug sure. is, um, is, is the inability to, um, to have acceptance for what happened in your childhood. And I think that because of my practice, you know, this was a, a man who it was in his fifties, right. That, um, all of a sudden talked about his his history of what happened to him as a child um you know having abuse having having you know inappropriate things happen to him in his childhood and it was when we were together that he for the first time had ever talked about it and it wow. it happened on my table right treating him and that was before we got married that was why he was like so angry about the priest not wanting to marry us in the church he wanted somebody to marry us he he thought he had the right to say it because of what they did and and this whole story came out and it was really like as if you had pulled the bulb out of the tulip right you pulled the bulb right out mm -hmm. and the source of it was there but without um, the, the critical mass for my husband, unfortunately, is that our therapist died. And then right after that, his sponsor of 20 plus years died. Oh, and, right. Exactly. And so it was the anchors that I had relied upon to keep him, you know, say, oh, yeah, say, that's, a, yeah. that's a hit for sure. Yeah. And, and I just wasn't strong enough to my by myself with no support from a family side or from friends really understanding how to help him and so when i reached out to friends to say i think i need to call in a lifeline i i don't know what to do here and then i said to them you know i don't want him to feel like i'm tattling on him but he's not sober and I need help. And instead of, and this is, you know, again, where I think to myself, you know, I forgive myself for these moments where I should have 
uh, found one of the people that were in the AA community, but I didn't want to be the person to then break the 25 years of sobriety that he sure. had worn like a badge. Absolutely. And, and I would, I would also posit to say that, that he set you up that way as well. That, 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 that's part of the gaslighting is that, is that we compartmentalize you out. You're at, first of all, you're too close. And then second of all, you've already been set up to not be that tattletale because that's, that's the behavior of the alcoholic for sure. Yeah. And, and the other thing that you find, uh, and probably anybody listening to this, if they've dealt with someone suffering from addiction, they tend to have two camps of friends, people who know them as a, as a sober person. Right. And then the rest of the people where it's the anonymity of the story of AA. And that, that also is um, damaging to the person who is afflicted, but it's also very damaging to the the partner of the person to for me because I didn't I actually didn't realize that these people weren't together except in one instance where he had said to me you know don't mention to these guys anything about you know smoking pot and I thought to myself (laughs) you know like like why would I even bring that up you know what I mean like I didn't even like it was like why like Okay, you know what I mean? So that that was, um, you know, but these are these like little things that were happening all along. And I just, I don't know, I feel very foolish now, because I think to myself, God, it's so glaring. And then, of course, after he passed away, Mm -hmm. and people found out that he died, and that he was in AA, they were like, I mean, I did this with him. I did that with him. I'm like, oh, God, people don't like I don't want to talk to anybody anymore. Right. I don't want to talk to I don't want to talk about it. You know what I mean? And I think think you nailed the shame thing for sure. I mean, that all the behavior is shame behavior. So how have you healed from this? What did you do to heal yourself? You know, I took the biggest risk of my life, I think. I think I was sitting in a place where I felt completely isolated and I had a family that a family side that shamed me and made me, you know, I I, I was pegged as the bad guy. It was all my fault that he died. Right, right, right. And of course, of course, it has to be somebody's fault. Sure. And, the and so I um I I have for my whole life, I I write in a journal. And I think it, you know, it keeps your mind clear is, is I meditate. And then when I come out of that, I spend 30 minutes and I just write in a journal. And I've been doing that for years through the whole trauma. Wow. And then when he died, it became my reprieve is to is to write it down. What were the what were the words? And so I took this insane idea and I thought I'm going to share my grief and how I'm going to overcome this on social media. Nice. And so I created what I called my thought of the day. Um, and I put, and I put it on social media and it would be like the thought of the day and the thought of the day would be rise or it would be grief or it would be, you know, perplexity or it would be trust or whatever the word was. And I would write this, I would share just a little excerpt, sometimes the full piece, but most of the time an excerpt from um, my journal and it was actually the private messages that I got from people who many who I knew for a long time who said, 
I, your words are helping me. I, I'm dealing with a husband who is an addict and this, that, and the other thing to the point where I would be like, if you want, I, I'm happy to talk to you on the phone. I've got some things that might help you, some, some ideas that might help you. And I've helped people that for, for no reason that I didn't even know to try to speak to their partner in a different way to, to help them rather than be angry at them for not being the person that you thought that they were. Um, and I think that re I think that really was, was what healed me was sharing my feelings out to the world and letting people like, you know, he had friends who would then badmouth me, you know, like, you know, how dare you write such a thing or whatever. And I, I, and I would then very kindly say, if you erred on more side of compassion, he would probably be still walking the earth. Why don't you check yourself in? Be mindful about what you say on other good people's for you. Yeah, yeah. Good for you. So I think that it, 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 I think losing him was a practice in more deeply understanding compassion and, and going back to really trusting my intuition and myself. I think that, you know, our teachers come in weird outfits in a sense, you know, um, so he was, I think he was a phenomenal teacher for me to realize that I needed to go through this to learn how deeply I can love and how my desire to understand the irreverent question that I think I've asked since I was a kid, I remember when I was seven and my dad would remind me of this many years after is um, sitting there pulling on my skin. And I said to my dad, how did I get in here? And he oh, said, wow, oh he goes in where in the room? And I said, no, in here, he goes, I don't understand that question. What do you mean in there? Wow. How did I get in here? He goes, who am I talking to? And I said, exactly, I don't know, right? Wow. So I think that, and I've said this so many times, I'm convinced that I'm, all of us, we are spirits occupying bodies and utilizing minds to have a human experience. Oh, and we yeah. agree at some point before we create our form, we agree ahead of time that we're gonna connect with just a particular amount of souls to maintain and grab onto that spiritual enlightenment and, and create some, matter of what we are right because if all life is just waves and particles particles are mass but waves are possibilities oh, so like we nice. are we are the frequencies right we're the waves mm -hmm. that that connect and sometimes we crash on the shore just like uh, bruce lee says and sometimes we're like still waters so i feel like um this him dying really got me more deeply into my own meditation practice into my writing and into also trying to gain a better understanding of what consciousness is, of what the human experience is about. I think I have more of a curiosity about complexity theory and um, what is the universe is, and if everything is built out of consciousness, I think it was Rupert Spira who said, consciousness is that in which all experience arises in which all experience is known and out of which all experience is made. Wow. And I think, yeah, that's it, is that death can become the awakening 
to your own spirit that will always be connected no in life or death i mean love doesn't disappear and i feel like i could sit here very quietly and speak to christopher and somehow or other i would feel something or something would then happen where i know for certainty he's listening um that's beautiful it really is beautiful uh, i was there any physical aspects of your healing that that came about because of this Physical, I mean, I feel like I was grateful to have friends who are body workers and get therapy and get body work to allow it to move through me. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think that there's so many rituals that um, I've engaged in in the past four years to, um, to, to just get more deeply to my own soul and my own um, explanation for myself. Um, Any particular ones that stand out ritualistically? I think some of the rituals I've done, um, like I, I had one uh, with a with a shaman with mushrooms, and that was pretty eye opening. Um, I think a lot of just the simple meditation with sound healing have been really really beneficial for me. Uh, you can really feel those in your fascia, can you not? The sound? I, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's sort of, you know, especially with something like mushrooms where you, I feel like I could sit there and be um, entirely certain that I am not this mind and I am not this body, that my expansive frequency is connecting to all of the things outside of myself and in that there is no separation. Very much like fascia you know, again, you can call it a tissue, right? And now you can talk about layers and membranes and fascial envelopes, but that's because you're cutting it with a blade and you're in the gross anatomy of the substance. But when you go a little deeper and you start looking with atomic force microscopy, again, there's no separation. Well, if I think of complexity theory, right? I see my hand, but if I were to look at it and under a microscope, it's just trillions of cells. Yeah. that are yeah. actually sitting right outside of other trillions of cells that I just can't see with my naked eye, but there's no connect, there's no separation in it. Stro strolling under the skin. You ever seen that video? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. see Gumberto, when I saw his first video in 2007, I was sitting right next to Gil and he kind of nudged me and he goes, there's your fluid system. And I just, <laughs> there it is, you know, like had ever I really believed in my own, you know, in, intuition and john you've even said it like when you put your hands on someone you're you're feeling a frequency and vibration and ever since i've been a kid i've always had this affinity toward trees and we had a we had 50 birch trees in our backyard as a kid and i would go out especially on days where in school i was very bullied i would go out into the backyard and just lay next to the trees because the frequency of the roots i would just feel it almost tickled my belly mm -hmm. and um my uh an interesting you know oddity i don't know why this is going up but when when i was a kid like my dad was always somebody to kind of condemn my 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 intuition i guess and uh, i'd gone out one day after school i'd been bullied i think i even had a black eye and i went to go hug the trees and the my, one of my most special trees just didn't have any frequency to it 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 was like it wasn't there and so i, I run to another tree 
and I'm going to run to another tree and I'm, I'm, I'm on the f- ground and my dad comes out and he's like, what are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> the, tree, the trees are dead. And he's like, the trees are not dead. I go, all of the trees are dead. He goes, Sue, it's the fall. The leaves fall off the trees oh. every single year. They're going to come back. I said, these trees are dead. Well, sure enough, the next spring comes, the leaves don't bud. And by the summertime, we're now cutting down 47 to 50 trees because we had a locust infestation and it killed oh, almost crap. all of the trees in the backyard. And my dad grabbed me on my arm and said, whatever it is that you do, you got to stop doing it. You're going to scare people. You're scaring me. <laughs> that is strange. You are a weird kid and you need to keep that stuff to yourself. And I was lucky enough. I mean, this is kind of full circle is I was w- at, at that same summer with my great grandmother, not playing outside with the kids. And she said, why aren't you playing? And I said, because I'm weird and I just don't fit in. And she, you know, in her half Italian, cleaning her hands off for making pasta says to me, um, who said you were weird? And I said, my dad did. I'm cursed. I said to her, I'm cursed. And she said, you know, Sue, you have a gift. This is a gift. And, and you're special. You're not weird. You're special. And someday your gift is going to become your greatest blessing. Maybe just keep it to yourself, but you'll see at some moment, it will be what will make you shine. And I think that that is the gift that I had then that because of those words, I have just always kept it all of these years and it allowed me to be who I am today. Yeah, that's for grandmas. Yeah, yeah, grandma. Yeah, yeah. My oma was amazing. So great grandma is like, you know, we, like I say, we have just a particular amount of spirits that are influential. And even in the fashion community, I find that I don't think it's ironic that the fashion community has been my thread, my connection to some of the greatest people that I've met in all of my life have been part of this particular fascial net. Um, I, I think we're, we, yeah. we, we gravitate toward those same people who have that same type of feeling, sensation, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. For Very sure. Ah, oh, amazing. That's about it. You got any parting words? I guess I would just say to anybody who's listened to any of this, if you're suffering with addiction or you you love somebody who's suffering with addiction the best thing you can do is try to speak with love and compassion and remember that addiction is like a devil inside of you that wants you to die it wants you to suffer and the best thing we can do is recognize it stand away from it and try to bring light uh, toward it, but not corner it because devils will attack you if you shine a bright light and put it in a corner. So do your best to keep your arms open and um, don't keep it to yourself. I know that if you're in a family, you know, we all want to keep up with the Joneses and have this outward whatever, but shame is a a very heavy emotion and it can kill somebody. And so we need to step into those moments together and out of it, we could really become great. Awesome. If someone wanted to follow your Instagram that you're sharing uh, the thoughts on, what would, where would they go? Oh, well, if you wanted to see my, uh, that's on my private or my, my personal Sue Hitzman page uh-huh. is where my thoughts of the day are. I've been having a lot of people say, you should put that into a book. 
That whole thing should be like or I, just a page of just. I had that, that thought a while ago. Yeah, maybe maybe not yet, but eventually. Yeah, and I would also say maybe they can also go to Melt Method and find me on Melt to just find out a little bit more about our community. And I would also say to anybody because every time I do my own. Um, talks, I always say sip water frequently, eat water filled foods. And now that we've gotten everybody's attention, as soon as you're done listening to this, call somebody that you love and tell them that you love them and why, because in doing that, you elevate the frequency of your energy. And, and in that you elevate the frequency of the whole universe. Amen. Thank you for that. That was amazing. We oh. really appreciate everything you had to say. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm uh, looking forward to meeting you in person someday. I hope so. Hopefully over a dead body. <laughs> yes, that would be so fun. Let's do a cadaver dissection. Let's find Gil. I would I would love that. I'm looking forward to seeing his, uh, his nerve tour. I'll be there. I'm going to go do his nerve tour in Fort Myers. I'm definitely seeing him there. You're going to Florida. He's not coming out to Palm Springs till next year. I may have to go to Vegas next month, I think, is the closest he's going to be around me. I'll, I'll see it twice. Holy moly, it just sounds amazing. Thank you.